it has become our custom on the first Sunday of the month, uh, Lord's Supper Sunday, to take a break from the preaching series and to look at a doctrine, a Bible teaching that's central to our faith, that makes a difference in how we live. And in past first Sundays of the month, we first looked at total depravity. And we learned at that time that that is the biblical teaching that every spiritually lost person is as bad off as one can possibly be in the sight of God, total depravity. Then we looked at grace, the great and marvelous doctrine of grace, which would be the melody of heaven. And the grace is the biblical teaching that God's favor extends toward undeserving mankind and that the believer in Christ gets God's riches at Christ's expense. The last time we looked at a doctrinal sermon, it was on substitution. And we saw together at that time, that is the biblical teaching that Christ took our place and received the punishment that we deserve. And today we come to imputation, the doctrine of imputation, and that is God's work of reckoning a sinner's debt to Christ's account and God's work of reckoning Christ's righteousness to the believing sinner's account. The scriptures teach three significant imputations. I'm going to list the three and then expand upon them with you. Three significant imputations taught by God's word. Number one, Adam's sin has been imputed to the human race. Number two, Adam's race's sin has been imputed to Christ. And third, Christ's righteousness is imputed to believers. Let's take these one at a time. First, the imputation, Adam's sin has been imputed to the human race. We could say that's our debt. Adam's sin has been imputed to the human race. That's our debt. In Romans 5, verses 12 and 14, it says the following, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law Sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. These verses are teaching us that Adam... Was, is our federal head. We all came to be descendants ultimately back all the way to him. He's our federal head. And all of us have been born, as it were, in him. The verses also teach that Adam sinned and received his sin's consequences. And we all sin since Adam and receive our sin's consequences. The verses teach that Adam died when he partook of the forbidden fruit in the garden. He died spiritually, he died physically, and he died eternally. And when we sin, and because we are born in sin, we all, without Christ, die. We die spiritually, physically, and eternally if we do not know Christ at the end. These verses teach more. Adam's original sin is the root 
of all of our personal sins. Adam's original sin is the root of the thing, and my individual sins and your individual sins are the fruit of that root. Adam's sin has been imputed to the human race. The verses also tell us that we all are declared to be sinners because we are in Adam. And the verses point out that this declaring in a general sense happened prior to the law before there were any specific Mosaic law violations people nonetheless sinned without God's law yet being given. How do we know that people sinned before God's law was given? Because they all physically died. That's what Romans 5, 12 to 14 is teaching. But there's more, another passage, still in Romans 3, verses 9 to 18. Listen. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This passage is teaching us that both Jew and Gentile all persons are under sin because all persons are in Adam. Jew or Gentile, all persons are under the law. We're all guilty before holy God. And God's revealed will, the Ten Commandments and all the other code, just reveals that fact for us. So that is the first imputation of Scripture. That Adam's sin has been imputed to the whole human race, and the whole human race owes a debt to God because of it. There is a second imputation in the scriptures. It is the imputation of Adam's race's sin has been imputed to Christ. You could call this Christ's payment. Christ's payment. 1 John 2 Verses 1 and 2 say, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation, that is the satisfactory payment, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. These two verses are saying that the sinner's debt has been imputed or reckoned to Christ, and Christ has fully paid off of that debt down to zero for the believer. 
The Bible word is propitiation, a satisfactory payment, a payment in full, a payment that lacks nothing. Now, the phrase in verse 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for um, our sins only, but also for the whole world. I'll come back to preach more detail on that in a future week of God spares life. But still under this second imputation, that of Adam's racist sin being imputed to Christ, let's go to Isaiah 53, that precious messianic prediction of the Lord Jesus Christ 700 years before the first Christmas. Verses 1 to 6, Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness when we see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This imputation we are exploring together, namely the imputation of Adam's race's sin onto Christ and Christ's payment for that sin, was predicted, prophesied, that Jesus Christ would be our sin bearer before crucifixion was even conceived in the mind of man. It talks about crucifixion language in Isaiah 53. But there's more. There's a passage in Leviticus 16, verses 5 to 30. Israel was given by God mercifully a picture of how, the, how the, that the race, human race's sin would be imputed on the Messiah. Israel was given a picture of this with the, a rite, uh, an annual uh, ceremony with a scapegoat. Listen to what Israel was told to do and why in Leviticus 16, 5 to 30. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats, that is, baby goats, young goats, as a sin offering, and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, 
which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring his blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. When he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Very specific, very prescribed course of action, blood-based atonement. And the scapegoat was a picture centuries before the incarnation of the Lord Jesus that God would choose to impute Adam's race's sin unto Christ, that he would be our sin bearer. In the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, Christ. Our reconciliation to God is only possible because of imputation. The imputation of our sins unto Christ and the imputation of Christ's righteousness unto us as believers. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25 talks about this imputation as well. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us as an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were going astray like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd, capital S, the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Yes, our reconciliation to God is only possible because of imputation. That our sin bearer, the Lord Jesus Christ, carried 
my sins on himself while dying on the cross, carried all of your sins upon himself when he died on the cross. And that all happened without in one way, shape, or form making the Lord Jesus, who was the sin bearer, was never made to be a sinner. 1 Peter 3.18, still on this marvelous imputation. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, capital S, Spirit. Christ is the believer's sin substitute. If you are here redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, converted, born again, if you are here without blessed standing, then Jesus Christ is now and ever shall be your sin substitute. He died the death which we all deserve to die. And being just, he died instead of the unjust, in the place of the unjust, as a substitute for the unjust. And he died to pay for us. And Galatians 2.20 tells us we also died with him. There are some biblical synonymous terms for the imputation of our sins onto the Lord Jesus Christ. I won't look up all these verses, but just listen. These are different ways the scripture talks about the fact that the believer's sin is imputed onto Christ temporarily when he died for us. It is said that he bore our griefs, Isaiah 53, 4a. He carried our sorrows, Isaiah 53, 4b. He was pierced through for our transgressions, Isaiah 53, 5a. God laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53, 6. He made him to be sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And he bore our sins, 1 Peter 2, 24. So we've seen two of the three imputations so far. The first imputation being Adam's sin has been imputed to the human race. We call that our debt. The second imputation we've already seen, Adam's race's sin has been imputed to Christ. We call that Christ's payment. We come to the third imputation of Scripture, which is Christ's righteousness is imputed to believers. Christ's righteousness is imputed to believers. We could say that is Christ's gift. Christ's righteousness imputed to the likes of us, to our believers. Christ's gifts. I was thinking of trying to illustrate this. It's not a very strong illustration. You can't get the profundity of Christ's righteousness being imputed to believers with an illustration, I don't think, but let me try. It's like a scholarship monetary gift being credited to a student's account at a college. The debt the student owed the college for tuition and room and board and all of that, if there's a scholarship money gift, it credits into the college student's account to, in that case, reduce the debt. The difference here is that when Jesus Christ took our sin, that his righteousness is imputed to our accounts and we no longer have a sin debt. Oh, to God, hallelujah. 
Romans 3. The verses I'm going to share with you now, most of them make the point that it's faith in Christ that brings God's righteousness. Do you believe that? It's not our efforts. It's not our deprivations. It's not our uh, behaviors that brings God's righteousness into our account and into our lives. It's faith in Christ that brings about God's righteousness as a positional reality in our lives, but also as a practical reality in our lives. Our faith in Christ. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So Romans 3, 21 and 22 say, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets is another way of saying the Old Testament. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, watch, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all. All who believe. There is no difference. So these two verses are saying that faith in Christ brings God's righteousness to the believer. There is another pair of verses later on in the New Testament that teach the very same thing, that faith in Christ brings God's righteousness. Philippians 3, 8, and 9. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost. He's just gone through his spiritual resume as a Jew and as a Pharisee, etc. But he writes in Philippians 3.8, Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, scubula, Greek word for human waste that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God by faith. Philippians 3, 8 and 9, therefore it's underscoring what Romans 3, 21 and 22 just taught us, namely that it's faith in Christ that brings about God's righteousness for you and me. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 to 31. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. The verses are saying, Christ becomes the believer's righteousness. Some of us, before we believed on Christ for salvation, were convinced by maybe a church we were in or our parents or our own selves that we somehow, in some measure, were righteous. We were rather proud of ourselves. We weren't as bad as her or bad as him. We compared ourselves to other people. It's like measuring oneself with a six-inch ruler and concluding that you're 24 feet tall. This verse is saying, in reality, in the eyes of heaven, which are the only eyes that matter, that Christ becomes the believer's righteousness at the point of the believer's conversion. 
We may have come into salvation under the misunderstanding and the error that we thought we were somewhat righteous. But when we understand the depth of our depravity, the pollution of our very heart and mind and soul without Christ, how bad off we totally were before God when we were not yet in Christ. When we come get faith and insight from God to understand those things, then Christ became you. Christ became the believer's righteousness. That's when it happened for you. In the transactional book in heaven, Christ became your righteousness when you trusted him as Savior. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This again is underscoring verses previous to this one that I'm reading, namely that faith in Christ brings God's righteousness to the believer in Christ. Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer Sprinkled, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? These precious verses are teaching us that Christ was a sinless substitute. Christ was utterly sinless as he went to that cross. Utterly sinless as he died on that cross. And because of his sinlessness as the God-man, he is the only substitute that could die in our places and retire our sin debt to the Heavenly Father. Still in Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 10 to 14. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, capital S, but this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being 
sanctified. These verses, dear family, these verses are teaching us that our precious Lord Jesus Christ was a sacrificed substitute. The verses in chapter 9 of Hebrews we just covered said he was a sinless substitute. These verses in Hebrews 10 say he was a sacrificed, sinless substitute. And so, in Adam, by birth, we were all declared to be sinners. In Adam, by birth, we were all declared to be unrighteous. But in Christ, by rebirth, we are declared to be saints. In Christ, by rebirth, we are declared to be righteous. As you come to partake of the Lord's Supper elements today, may these truths of imputation stir your heart to love, yieldedness, obedience, and witness. Shall we pray? Oh, the love of God, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us instead of us. May these imputation truths move off of the pages of our Bibles into the minds and hearts of our thinking and of our loving. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our sinless and our sacrificed substitute. Thank you that we are robed in your righteousness and that our sin debts, which were many, which were the only way we could have paid for our own sin debts was with conscious torment in hell forever. But thank you, Lord Jesus, that you paid all of our sin debts in full propitiation and then went beyond that and gave us your righteousness. Oh, we shall forever worship and praise and thank you. For we pray in Jesus' precious name, amen.